You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 20, please. We look at the Ten Commandments once again. And we'll be in the Sixth Commandment again today. I think this is the 20th sermon on the Ten Commandments. I did a little count at the end of the week, and I'm pretty sure that's the number that I saw there, maybe off by one or two, but that's uh, where we are, and um, we're in the sixth commandment again today, and I'll begin reading in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 on through verse 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, And the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Oh, Father, how we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the love that you show us by revealing your law to us. Sanctify us through the preaching and teaching of your word this morning. Save sinners and strengthen your church and anoint the preaching in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in the middle of this series on the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are the abiding law of God, the constitution of reality, the law of nature, and they are still binding. This isn't something of yesterday. These, these commandments are still binding. In fact, they serve as the very roadmap for life itself so that all of your principled thinking should be grounded in God's law and all of your principled actions should find their first principle in God and then God's law. So these commandments inform you of how to live, and they become your counselors and your guides 
in life, a light to your path. And more important, perhaps, is the fact that they reveal to you that you're a sinner, and they show you the need for Jesus Christ, so that in the commandments of God, you see the perfection of Christ, because Christ himself is the one who upheld and kept and loved the law of God perfectly. It was the desire of his heart. And so in the commandments, you see Christ because you see all of his perfections. And then the commandments point you to Christ, the great Savior who forgives your sins. And you can come to the commandments, you can be cut to the heart for your sin, and then run to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Now, we're in the um, sixth commandment, which is do not kill. And the last few weeks have been rather theoretical. I spent some time talking about um, defensive warfare and then even defensive civil war last week. And this week will be in the theoretical realm also. And so the application is in how to think properly and clearly upon issues and then how to form Inform your decisions if you ever find yourself in such and such a, a time and place where these things are necessary. So we've talked about capital punishment, we've talked about war, we've talked about Protestant resistance theory and civil war. And you say, why are you spending so much time on all of this theoretical, Pastor? Why, why bother doing this? Because I think for several generations there's been so much confusion on this stuff and so much bad teaching and so people feel guilty for doing right things, and they feel they're doing right for doing wrong things. And it's important that there be clarity brought to these. These things would have been taken for granted in um, our great-grandparents' generation. But they've largely been forgotten in a couple of generations. And so it's important that we revisit these first principles, and we kind of recalibrate are thinking on these issues. And so this is what I'm, one of my objectives in going through God's law, the Ten Commandments, is to help people to think properly on high-level issues and low-level issues. And the commandments hit on everything. They hit on high-level issues affecting public policy, and they hit on low-level issues that affect your heart and how you think and what you want and what you don't want. These are what the commandments do. And... When I'm talking about the Sixth Commandment, do not kill, and I've talked about capital punishment, war, civil war, and today we're going to talk about self-defense and revenge and pacifism, all three of those things. But what we need to understand is that what a commandment forbids, when it forbids something, it demands the opposite. This is a key interpretive principle when it comes to the commandments. What a commandment forbids... It demands the opposite. This is the way the rest of the scriptures interpret the commandments. So we've seen this. I've showed this um, previously. <clears throat> so what they forbid, they command the opposite. And when the commandment forbids murder, and this one does, it demands the opposite of murder. So if it forbids murder, it demands the preservation of human life, the protection of human life, the defense of human life. If it forbids murder, it demands that human life be valued and that human life be protected. And so that's why the, the, the talks on just war and lesser magistrate and Protestant resistance theory and today's self-defense even 
That, that's why these aren't exceptions to the Ten Commandments, the sixth, sorry, the sixth commandment. They're not exceptions. They're requisite. They're part of it. The commandment forbids murder, and therefore the commandment demands protecting human life. Matthew Henry, I've quoted him um, in these last few sermons at the beginning because I think what he says is so important. Speaking of the sixth commandment, he says, It does not forbid killing in lawful war or in our own necessary defense, nor the magistrates putting offenders to death. For those things tend to the preserving of life. And so this commandment is for the preservation of human life. That's what it's for. And so here's the three headings today that we'll be looking at. One, I'm going to talk about self-defense. Two, I'm going to talk about revenge. There's a difference between self-defense and revenge or vengeance. And then three, I'm going to talk about pacifism. One, two, three. Self-defense, revenge, pacifism. So let's talk about self-defense for a minute. This will be more than a minute, but it'll be the lengthiest of my points this morning. But let's talk about it for a while. And by way of review, as we talk about self-defense, just war, so justified defensive warfare is when the government defends your life from another nation. That's justified warfare. Justified civil war is when the government, one level or branch of government, defends your life from another level or branch of government. So I talked about last week. And just to review that, I want to say this, because the temptation may come to be drawn into various things. <clears throat> that, that means that, that justified civil war is not armed mob rule. That's unjustified, okay? It's not violence pouring into the streets to overthrow the government. That's not what justified civil war is. Justified civil war is rallying around one level or branch of government to resist the offensive measures of another level or branch of government. That's what it is. Otherwise, you get French Revolution-style carnage and death. And you don't want that. Things have to be organized. They have to be thoughtful. They have to be done properly. And so that's what justified civil war is. Well, self-defense takes the principle that we apply to justified war and justified civil war, and then it applies it to personal defense. It's the same principle, preservation of human life, applied in a new place. So this is what we mean when we say act in a way that's principled. You're taking the principle and you're applying it similarly or the same in different situations. Like principle, same principle, different situations. So justified self-defense is taking the principle of just war or just civil war and applying it to your own personal defense or defense of your family, okay? And so when I spoke about just war two weeks ago, I listed some of the rules for going to war and engaging in war for a nation to abide by. And then those same rules were applied to engagement in civil war. And now they need to be implied to 
engagement in self-defense. So here's a few rules. Well, one is self-defense, like warfare, the purpose is to protect self or others from injury or death. That's what the purpose is, to protect self or others from injury or death. Self-defense should be a last resort when other options have been exhausted or no other options are available, one or the other. When other options have been exhausted. No, I mean, if you're in a situation where you have to defend yourself or defend your family, you don't always have time to think through, well, did I do this? Did I do this? Did I do this? Right? But the whole idea is, the heart is, there's not another option here. You got to do what you got to do. It must be limited proportionally, okay? Limited by proportionality. So the same thing with war, right? If there's 100 troops lining up at your border and the only thing that they have is guns, you're not dropping nuclear bombs on them, right? That's proportionality. You're meeting force with force. And it's, <clears throat> it's the same thing in this, in this case. If you, have, if you have a group of, you know, 10 strong guys being attacked by some scrawny 14-year-old kid, it's not justification to kill the 14-year-old kid, right? It's you resist with proportionality is what I, I'm saying when it comes to self-defense. There has to be a level of proportionality to it. And so, you know, and, and sometimes the, the options to run or sometimes the options to talk your way out of it, and that's what you hope to do, but sometimes you can't do that. But every, no Christian should come into any topic of self-defense, same thing with war, and think, oh, can't wait for an excuse to start throwing hands. That's not the heart of Christ. The throwing of hands or the drawing of weapons is to be done to protect life. And if your attitude is, can't wait for some, you know, for, for some blood to, to come out of that guy's nose or can't wait for the opportunity to manhandle somebody. That's not the Christian attitude. It's this is a necessary way to protect and preserve and respect human life. It's violence that is used as a way of love to protect human life. It's taking the principles of just defensive warfare and instead of applying them to the natural and civil realm, they're being applied at a personal level. So here's, here's the principle. The commandment forbids killing. <clears throat> Therefore, the commandment demands the preservation of human life. I've said this a few times. I'm saying it again just so everyone gets it. I'm trying to emphasize it. What the commandment forbids, the commandment demands the opposite. When it forbids something, it demands the opposite. The commandment forbids murder. It demands the protection of human life. And when we talked about the Sixth Commandment on the first Sunday and the Sixth Commandment, what does the Sixth Commandment forbid other than first-degree murder? It also forbids suicide, self-murder. So, if the commandment forbids self-murder, the commandment commands that you protect yourself from murder, right? To treat your life, your own life, with a level of dignity. If you're not allowed to kill yourself, do not kill yourself, then what's the opposite that's demanded of you? Do protect yourself, right? What the commandment 
forbids, it also commands the opposite. And so the commandment forbids what? Well, it forbids the killing of your family. Duh, right? Well, then what does it demand? It demands the protection of your family. If it forbids the killing of your family, it demands the protection of your family. This is how the law of God works. And so, real easy, what if your family is under attack? What are you going to do? What if your family is threatened by a home invader? What are you going to do? Something I I tell my kids regularly, which you should be doing, is part of a defensive posture is always be aware of your surroundings. Right? You see people walking around in, in public and they got their headphones in and they're scrolling on their... That person's a, a sitting duck. You should always be aware of what's going on. Who's watching you? I'm not talking about being paranoid. I'm just talking about being aware of your surroundings and to know what's going on. Who's following you? How many people are around? Who's around? Right? Does anything look out of place? This is all part of self-defense. Thinking through situations, and oh, that looks off. There's no route of escape. So if this goes down, then what do I do? And, and going out of your way not to put yourself in a situation where that actually becomes a thought process. Avoiding those situations where it's like, well, if this goes down, then what do I do? Like, don't even go to those places. But if you accidentally find yourself in one of those places, then these are the things that you should be thinking about. And we're coming into a day and age in our society. You've likely noticed this is not a society that is increasingly peaceful. We used to pride ourselves in being a very peaceful people in this country. Those days are gone. We don't need to live under that illusion anymore. And I remember my wife telling me that when she went on a mission trip as a teenager to South Africa, they told all the girls in the mission group that they're not allowed to go out anywhere alone and they're to travel in groups, and there must be at least one male in the group in order to protect them, right? And this is something that we may need to be more and more concerned on as the days grow darker and darker. The young ladies especially would want to be concerned about because they're more vulnerable, right? Who are you going out with? Are you going out alone? Maybe it's best to go with your dad or with your brother or not go to that place or so on or or with your husband, or whatever, so that you have somebody around you. But this is the world in which we live, unfortunately. It's, it's a rare thing for a society to be as safe as we were accustomed to it being. That's rare. The normal thing is to live in violence and chaos on this side of the fall. And so this is where we are, and this is all part of thinking defensively. So it's not just, when you talk about self-defense, it's not just like, okay, if it comes down to it, how am I going to outmaneuver someone or throw my weight around? But it's part of being operating in a way of self-defense. Thing: How do I make sure it doesn't go down to this and come down to that? And how do I avoid the situation where that might happen as opposed to going and looking for it and looking for an excuse to, to, to carry on with this way? So, you know, this is all good and great. This is theory, and hopefully you're thinking by this point, in my point, well, what about the Bible, Pastor? I mean, what about the Bible? What does the, the Bible say? And um, the idea of self-defense is embedded in Old Testament civil code because it's just and right. 
And so if you look over in your Bible just a couple pages to Exodus 22, you see this. Exodus 22, 2-3, self-defense is embedded in the civil code. And, it, and the law of God gives homeowners the permission to kill burglars, especially if they come at night. And so it says in verse 2 of Exodus 22, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So the idea is, is if your residence is broken into and you kill the thief, you're not guilty before God, right? And under a just law, and if the society was just, you wouldn't be guilty before the government. And verse 3 says, however, but if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. So the, uh, the idea is when the sun's up, everyone's awake, and there might be a way to get out and avoid the confrontation. So, so maybe there's going to be a trial now. But if the sun's down and it's dark and everyone's kind of, you know, doesn't have their way about them or they might even be sleepy and someone's sneaking around clearly with ill intent, then that's a justified use of, vo- of force to essentially destroy the person's life to protect your family. According to Scripture. Um, and you know, this, this sounds great in theory, but unfortunately this isn't always the way things line up. It doesn't always line up with our own legal code in our country, does it? Sadly. So it could be that somebody breaks into your home and it's a very likely situation where someone breaks into your home and you were to take them out. You could be given more time than that person. Right? However... There was a case just a couple months ago you might have heard of where a, a man in uh, this side of the GTA, I think it was Mississauga, he was in a home at night and there was a home invasion and he shot and killed the intruder. Now, of course, charges were pressed by the police against this man, but the police eventually withdrew charges because they knew there was no way they'd be able to prosecute him because his use of force was justified in the situation. And they punished him with the process for a little while, but then they backed off on the charges, and he's, he's not going to be charged. But in a just society, there would be a great deal of deference given to a homeowner in that type of a situation. And the homeowner would be protected and would be allowed to use a force, especially if he's caught off guard, especially if the, the um, intent of the intruder is clearly malicious and malignant, In such a case, there would be the justified use of force, even to the point, as Exodus 22 says, of bringing the person down. Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 22, verse 35 says, he said to them, so he's sending his disciples out, and he's talking about how the days are going to grow dark, and he's going into evil times. Luke 22, verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag, or knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. Verse 36, he said to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So in that passage, Jesus actually tells his disciples to buy a sidearm, a sword in that case. And you should know, though, as I talk about that passage, that there's debate back and forth, so there are some notable influential scholars um, of, of today and times gone by who will say Jesus was speaking in spiritual terms in that passage. 
So when he says go out and buy a sword, he doesn't really mean, you know, our literal sword. He's meaning use spiritual weapons. However, we ought to go inside with the plain reading of the text. And there's nothing else in that text is being interpreted as spiritual, whether it's money bags or cloaks or food, right? But it just happens to be the sword that's interpreted as spiritual. And so we ought to go with the plain meaning of the text. R.C.H. Lenski, the Lutheran commentator, sit on the text at hand in Luke 22. He said, Jesus tells the apostles to buy a Roman short sword, if necessary, even at the price of their outer robe. It is better to freeze at night than be killed. And so the idea is, it's it's not even like having the sword means they're going to use the sword. It's just the sight of the sword could be a deterrent to would-be thieves and robbers. Oh, he's going to put up some resistance. He has a sidearm on him. So let's just leave him alone. We want a soft target. And so just the sight of it is, could very well be a deterrent in this situation. But here's the thinking, the way the thinking should be in the Christian mind. If, if I have a right to live, and if you have a right to live, which the Bible, you know, the Sixth Commandment tells you you do, do not kill, means you have a right to live, our, our, our rights are grounded in God's law, then I have a right to protect what is mine, which is my life. And without a right to defend my life, my right really isn't a right. It's just at someone else's disposal. My right is now contingent on everyone else's goodwill. And so my right to live is contingent. If I don't have the right to defend myself, my right to live is now contingent on the goodwill of everybody else, as opposed to my right being an ultimate right and me having the ability to defend it. Now, as I'm talking about these things, um, some might wonder what might be coming to your mind with all the talk of self-defense would be the whole idea of bearing arms, especially as we talk about Jesus telling the disciples to buy a sword. What about bearing arms? I mean, the Americans have what they call the Second Amendment, don't they? The right to, to bear arms. And isn't that an American thing? The Second Amendment, isn't that an exclusively an American concept? And historically, no, it's not. The Americans tend, are, the, are the country that's preserved it best into in our own generation. But this is not an exclusively American concept. In fact, the Americans got it from the British when they became a nation. And I'll, I'll go over a little bit of history on this for you. And then I'll get back into the scriptures in a minute. Historically, the Americans got, developed this right to bear arms from the British. So go back hundreds and hundreds of years. When, when, when Rome collapsed, Roman government collapsed, Britain was the furthest outpost to the west of the Roman Empire. So you got Rome and Italy, and then the furthest outpost is Britain. And so one of the first things that Rome does when it collapses, what does it do? It withdraws the Roman troops, the Roman legions from Britain. And so when Rome removed their troops from Britain, with the exit of Rome went the exit of law and order. Because the Romans failed at a number of things, but one of the things they were good at was maintaining law and order. 
And when their troops left, law and order went with their troops because Rome had operated as a restraint on wickedness. And so the British, at that point in history, had to figure out how they're going to take care of themselves because it, it, chaos, they, they would descend into chaos and they would be opening themselves into all kinds of threats otherwise. And then beyond that, when King Alfred ruled in England in the 9th century, one of his main tasks was to repel the threat of Viking invaders who would come to the island and they'd rape and they'd pillage. That's all they would do. They would arrive on land, they'd rape and pillage. Rape and pillage, rape and pillage, rape and pillage. And so Alfred had to figure out how he's going to protect his people from rape and pillaging from the Vikings. And so what Alfred did is he called the communities, the local towns and boroughs, to form citizen militias, to arm the citizens, and then to teach the little towns and boroughs across England to fend off Viking attacks. And so, and it was on the local towns and boroughs. It wasn't on some centralized government to do it. It was on those local towns and boroughs. It was because Alfred figured, if, if I can get the people to defend themselves and organize themselves, they won't be relying on a centralized government to do it for them. And at that point, the centralized government was kind of weak anyway. And so the towns that did what Alfred said, and they formed citizens' militia, they were able to protect their towns from being pillaged and raped. And the towns that wouldn't arm themselves and wouldn't form militias were towns that could not protect their people from being pillaged and raped. And they, they were absolutely destroyed by the, the Vikings. And so this is all English history. This isn't American history. And then in 1688, in, the United, or in, in, in England, you have what you call the Glorious Revolution. I've talked about that before. And that was when William of Orange invaded Britain and he liberated Britain from the Catholic tyranny of James II. And so he, 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 he was invited in by the lords and the bishops to come in and over, you know, overthrow James. And he sent James packing back to the continent. And after William of Orange came to Britain, uh, they enacted, the British government enacted the English Bill of Rights in 1689. And within the English Bill of Rights, there is one right that pertains to bearing arms in 1689. It's, it's right there and it's codified. And it's the right for every Protestant to have a gun, firearm. Why every Protestant? Because they just come out of tyranny at the hands of Catholics. And so the idea was, if the citizens had guns, they would protect themselves from tyrants. So this was codified within the Bill of Rights. And we, when we confederated as a nation, when Canada had confederation, we inherited the Bill of Rights as part of our Constitution. So that this was part of who we were as Canadians, that you know, this whole idea of Protestants having the right to bear arms was part of our constitution at Confederation. And the idea of Protestants having the right to bear arms in 1689 was a hundred, less than a hundred years, just less than a hundred years before the American Revolution. And so when the Americans had their revolution in 1776, they were able to say, 
we're going to perfect this English idea of bearing arms and put that into the Second Amendment. So this is not, this is not a, an American idea. This is very much a British idea, and it's very much an idea that we inherited at Confederation. And the early fur, fur traders in this country and the early trappers, they needed guns to survive in the bush to protect themselves from attacks with wild animals and encounters with natives. Uh, otherwise, they would have been defenseless and killed. But gun control didn't become an issue in this country until the days of prohibition with the bootleggers. And this was a way to, that the government sought to curb organized crime, was they now brought in regulations. Um, they tried to regulate handguns in order to curb organized crime. And then the regulations surrounding gun ownership hit a whole new level in 1969 when Pierre Trudeau enacted an omnibus bill. And if you, if you watch the documentary that I, that I produced, Antichrist in His Ruin, we talk about this omnibus bill in it that was a pivotal point in Canadian history because it was the omnibus bill that legalized abortion. It, it was the omnibus bill that legalized gambling. And it was the law, omnibus bill that legalized sodomy. But that omnibus bill did something else that I didn't mention in the documentary. It enacted severe measures of gun control within that omnibus bill. And then when Chrétien came to power in the 1990s, he made it even tighter with the long gun registry. Chrétien, or Harper came in in the early 2000s. He got rid of the long gun registry. And then since Trudeau, we've had some very stringent gun control with the prohibition of buying even pistols or handguns and then very stringent measures on even long gun ownership now. But my point in saying all of this is, is to say that the idea of bearing arms as an American idea is totally false. It's part of our own history. And it's something our government has attempted to um, control over the last generation or two or three. And the problem with the political, I'm going to get to the scriptures in a moment, but I'm going over the history. But the problem with the political discourse on this issue even as you look at it federally and as, it's, as you go back and forth between the liberals and the conservatives, and some of the conservatives seem to be more pro-gun, but even the conservatives who are pro-gun, it always centers around hunters and target shooters. That's what it always centers around. So we've got to defend the rights of hunters and target shooters. It never centers around the rights of citizens to defend themselves. And that's a big problem. Because the biggest proponents of gun control, namely our prime minister... As you see him, he's always surrounded by men with guns in their jackets. Always. Anytime you see this guy in public, he's got guys around him who've got guns in their jackets. And what does that communicate to you and me? It communicates that his life is more worthy of protection than yours. Right? And that his life is more worthy of protection than your little children's lives. Because he's allowed to have people around him that will defend his life with force. But you're not allowed to have that. So that's some of the theory and some of the history around this whole idea of self-defense and firearms. In, in Vindici Contra Tyrannos, which was a book written by French Huguenots in 1579, a French Huguenot in 1579, he said, A tyrant fills his garrisons with strange soldiers 
builds citadels against his subjects and disarms the people. It's with, that's, a, that's not a, an American book, by the way. That's written by a Frenchman, a Huguenot, in France. And so it's within, it's within the interest of a tyrannical government to take away the people's means of defense. Because then they can just run roughshod over you. And now you've got no means to legitimately protect your life or protect your family. But what does the scriptures say? Well, the scriptures agree with this. That it would be tyrannical, that it's within the interests of tyrants to strip the people of their firearms or of their weapons. 1 Samuel 13, verse 19. The people had been subjected to Philistines. The Philistines were tyrants at that time, oppressing the people. And what is one of the measures that the Philistines did? Verse 19 of 1 Samuel 13. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. So this is like nascent gun control. The Philistines made it so the people could not make weapons for themselves. Because they didn't want any kind of resistance to their oppression. If you go down in the passage a little later, what the people had to do in order to defend themselves against the Philistines' oppression and tyranny is instead of manufacturing guns, or sorry, in that case it would be swords and spears, what they did is they had to beat their plowshares into weapons. So you've heard the prophecy about, you know, that when the time of peace comes, we'll, we'll, ble- we'll beat, beat our weapons into plowshares, right? Well, when the time of tyranny comes, you beat your plowshares into weapons, and that's what the Israelites ended up having to do in order to repel the Philistines. And so in order to keep them oppressed, the Philistines disarmed Israel. And so this is an old trick that the enemy uses. And the right to bear arms is not American exclusively, but it's also British. And I believe it's scriptural on the basis of the fact that we have a right to self-defense in Scripture that all human life is worthy of dignity, and if one man in government has a right to have his life defended by a gun, then every single person has a right to have their life defended by a gun. And, <clears throat> and, and it's not just something that's for target shooting and hunting. It's British, it's scriptural, and it's ethical. So I think as Christian people, this is something that we should not only advocate for, But we should understand is our God-given right and responsibility to protect ourselves and our families as it pertains to self-defense. And we should advocate for more just uh, views of self-defense than we have established at this particular point in our country, which is in a very sorry state right now. Why would any people, as the country is descending into even more violence, why would any people demand that the government confiscate their, their, their weapons? It just makes, it makes no sense to me. So that the only people that have weapons are now criminals are government officials, which are often one and the same, right? So, but that's enough about, that, that's enough about self-defense. I told you I spent a long time on that, and I did. So let's talk about revenge or vengeance. And one of the things we have to do as we talk about self-defense is we have to distinguish it between revenge and so when people hear this teaching on self-defense, they automatically 
they, they go to um, Jesus' words, for example, in Matthew 5.38. In Matthew 5.38 and 39, you can read it if you want. It says, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So isn't Jesus saying, like, we shouldn't defend ourselves here? Well, first of all, being slapped on the cheek, if you want to take the text literally, is a little different than having a gun held to your head, right? Like, slap on your cheek, you're, you're probably not even going to have a bruise, maybe a little one, Right? So, so we're, we're talking, we're comparing apples to oranges here if we're saying, well, this means that there's no such thing as self-defense. But beyond that, two other points on this. Beyond that, Jesus was correcting a false understanding of what you call the lex talionis. And the lex talionis is the Old Testament concept of justice. So the Old Testament concept of justice is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So if the government wants to know how to met out justice, that's how you met it out, eye for eye, tooth to tooth. The, the punishment suits the crime. That's the Old Testament idea of justice in the Old Testament legal system. And what the Pharisees had done with the Old Testament idea of justice, they'd, pl- they'd applied it on an interpersonal level. So instead of saying, okay, it's the government's job to met out justice, it's the state's job to met out justice, eye for eye, tooth and tooth for tooth, what the... What the Pharisees were now doing is saying, if, if somebody does something to you, now you have a right to revenge. And Jesus is correcting that. He's saying, no, 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 no. You, you, you know, eye for eye, tooth for tooth works at an official level when you have the judiciary involved and you have the state involved. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth doesn't work in your marriage, okay? Right? Uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth doesn't work at the workplace. It doesn't work with your neighbors, It works at an official level when there's organized metting out of justice by the appropriate people that God has appointed. Even even the New Testament says the state does not bear the sword in vain. So the state has the sword. Why does the state have the sword? To met out justice. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And so when Jesus is talking about what he's talking about here, he's talking about things on an interpersonal level. And then beyond that, The whole idea of turning the other cheek comes from an Old Testament phrase that means resisting an insult. So I'll I'll, I'll show you where it comes from. When somebody somebody slaps you on the cheek under Old Testament parlance, what what it meant was a metaphor for somebody insulting you. And so Job chapter 16 verse 10, for example... Job was never beat up by his friends, he, he, but Job was mocked, and they said terrible things about him. And so Job says in Job 16, verse 10, men have gapped at me with their mouth, right? They're speaking ill of him. And they have struck me insolently on the cheek. They masked themselves against me. And so he's comparing the mocking of him, the deriding of him with the striking on the cheek. And then Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 30, similarly, does the same thing. It says, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. And so the idea of turning the other cheek is, I'm not returning violence for insults. I'm willing to take the insult. I'm not going to be so petty that I'm going to 
carry out vengeance for people that insult me. So this is not a wholesale call to not defend yourself. I do think that there are times when we shouldn't defend ourselves. I mean, Jesus laid down his life. That was, I mean, nobody here is going to be called to atone for the sins of the world, so you're not Jesus. But Jesus did lay down his life, and he did so willingly. And then beyond that, in, in our own day, I, you, you all saw the video of Tim Stevens being arrested out west a few years ago in front of his wife and kids. Like, like if, he had of, if he had have employed self-defense tactics in that moment, I don't think it would have ended well, right? Like that just wouldn't be a good idea. And so at that point, there, there was non-resistance that applied, and it certainly made a lot of sense. And it was the right thing to do in that situation. It would have been absolute foolish, and a minister being arrested in that type of a situation for being a faithful minister to start throwing hands against police officers would have been absolute folly. So there is a time to not resist. But the time to not resist doesn't negate the fact that there is a right to self-defense. Okay? And, and the Bible makes a big distinction between revenge and self-defense, which is what I think Jesus is doing in Matthew 5 and what Paul does in the book of Romans in chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, you know, you shouldn't avenge yourself. You shouldn't seek revenge. And then he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So that the idea is if you're insulted, you're hurt, somebody offends you, somebody does something bad against you, it's, it's not your prerogative to go out and, and punish them. You have to let the procedure take the place. And if there's not justice on this earth, there will be justice on judgment day. So anyone who carries out vendettas or holds grudges or is full of bitterness and is going out looking for revenge on different people, that person is a person who does not trust in God because God is the one who will avenge them. And we have this great liberty as Christians to know that even if we've been wronged, which certainly we have at times, right? Even if we've been wronged and justice has not been meted out on earth, we know that God will mat it out. So it's not upon us to go and punish our enemies. And thank God for that. But there's a big difference between revenge and self-defense in the moment when it's appropriate and when it's acceptable. When it's appropriate and when it's acceptable. If self-defense is right, revenge is sin. Self-defense is right, revenge is sin. And some of you might have hearts that are full of revenge because you're so full of bitterness, you're full of spite, you stew over what other people have said to you or not said to you, and you need to repent. And you need to trust that the people who have offended you, God will deal with them appropriately when that day comes. And that's a relief from you. That takes the pressure off you. So you don't need to be stewing there over various offenses against you, big or small. So I've talked about self-defense. I've talked about revenge. There are two different things. Revenge, bad. Self-defense, good. Okay. Now I want to talk for a few minutes about pacifism. Pacifism, in, in this area, it's, it's deep because of the number of Mennonites and Anabaptists we have around here who have many char good characteristics about some of their the various Mennonite or Anabaptist sects, but they're not all good. And pacifism is especially one of the rotten aspects of it. 
Pacifism is the belief that violence can never be used and is always sinful. That's what it believes, which is ridiculous. Because God himself in the Old Testament calls for violence at times. And God doesn't change. Okay? Not only that, God calls for violence in the New Testament. What does he tell us the, the job of the government is in Romans 13? To bear the sword. So he calls for violence there that is done appropriately and rightly. And then beyond that, when Jesus comes in judgment, there's going to be great violence. Revelation chapter 14 verse 20 says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So Christ's judgment is going to be so, it's just going to be so horrifying that there's going to be blood in the streets as high as a horse's mouth when he finally comes to met out judgment. That's how much sin there is and how much judgment there's going to be. So to say that all violence is sin is to say that the coming of Christ will be sin, is to say that the job of the magistrate in Romans 13 is sin, and it's to say that the call for just war in the Old Testament times is sin. All violence is not sin. Now, all violence is provoked by sin. So if there is a violent act that's justified today, it's only justified because it was provoked by sin. But not all violence is sin. It's a big difference. When it is used to protect the innocent, it is used proportionately and it is used right. And when it is used to met out justice by the proper means, it is used rightly. And, and the Mennonites, as best I can tell, the Anabaptists, same thing. The Anabaptists, as best I can tell, the reason um, they were they kind of reacted the way they have against, against uses of justified violence is because of some of the crimes committed by Anabaptists several hundred years ago. And so what happened during the Reformation, there was a city in Germany called Munster, and Munster was taken over by Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists ruled in Munster, and they basically set up a ruthless dictatorship where the leader of the city... Um, essentially raped and pillaged at his own pleasure. And there was a few people around him that enabled it. There was daily executions without trial. And eventually, Munster, and this was all at the hands of Anabaptists. The leader of the city was an Anabaptist. The, much of the citizenry was Anabaptist. The government was Anabaptist. And so, and this is what they did. They, they tried to create their Anabaptist paradise in Munster, and it turned into just bloodshed and terrible violence because they didn't employ principles of God's law. They just kind of went on with their feelings or whatever, and this is what God's telling me to do today. And, and the city was eventually overthrown by outside Protestant forces, and, and what happened was uh, the cathedral in Munster, I don't know, actually, I can't remember whether it was overthrown by Protestant or Catholic forces, but regardless, in the cathedral in Munster, they, they took the leaders of the Munster Rebellion, the leaders of the city, and they put them in cages, and they tied them to the top of the cathedral and they just let their bodies rot is an example of what you do with religious fanatics in Germany. And if you go to Münster today and you go to the cathedral in Münster, Germany, those cages are still there. Okay? And so this, this, there was a massive repulsion across Europe after the Münster Rebellion was settled down because people realized what had happened in that city. 
And it's almost like the massive repulsion that we would have towards the Nazis today. What happened in Germany? Terrible, right? Rightly. And so there was this real repulsion towards Anna, directed at Anabaptists in Germany and in, across Europe. And so the Anabaptists then had to figure out, how are we going to deal with this vitriol and hatred towards our religion because of what happened in Munster? And as best as I can tell, this is one of the reasons the, man, the Anabaptists became so adamantly pacifists, pacifists because they wanted to prove that Munster would never happen again. Okay? Because the Protestants across Europe and the Catholics across Europe were fed up with them after, after Munster and nobody wanted them around. So that seems to be where they got a lot of it from. But regardless, pacifism ignores, what it does is it ignores the cries of the victims. And not only does it ignore the cry of the victims, but it kills the instincts of the heroes. It ignores the cries of the victims, and it kills the instincts of the heroes. It is unscriptural. It is naive. It is a really, really, really bad idea. It's a terrible idea. And I thought Francis Schaeffer put it very well. He said, in this poor world in which we live, the lost world, this lost world, means, it means, pacifism means, that we desert the people who need our greatest help. It is, pacifism is the abandoning of those who are abused. It is the abandoning of victims. And it is letting them to suffer at the hands of terrible people. It comes from a very bad interpretation of Scripture, and it leads to an ungodly and low view of human life. It is no good at all. And so over the last three weeks, I've talked about capital punishment, I've talked about defense of war, I've talked about defense of civil war, I've talked about the difference between self-defense and revenge, and now I've spent a little bit of time about pass, talking about pacifism. And what I've tried to point out is that justified war and justified resistance and justified self-defense, these are not exceptions to the Sixth Commandment. They are required by the Sixth Commandment. Because what the commandment forbids, it necessarily demands the opposite. It forbids murder, it demands the protection of human life. We as Christians should be concerned about these things. These things should inform our mind, inform our thinking. We should be advocating for just and right views of human life in the public square. And if it ever comes to it, we should be able to act in a way that suits and is, is in line with a Christian conscience. Next week, I hope to get into some more applicational things as, as it affects our heart. But uh, this should certainly affect our thinking. This should affect our thinking. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the goodness um, that you have revealed to us and for your desire to protect human life and the dignity that is afforded to it. We pray that the day would come in our nation where the magistrates and the civil rulers would uphold the dignity of human life and the human life would be allowed to be defended appropriately. And that, um, and that those who violate human dignity and human life would be punished appropriately also. Have mercy upon us and help us to look to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.